Hi, how are you doing? I'm okay. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I, basically, I hiked treatment for breast cancer the last couple of years, and I finished all the active treatment in spring last year but i've had like side effects that they still can't really control so it's like oh, it would be today <laughs> well, congratulations to you for getting through that that's amazing and so is is it the situation that you have a series of scans and they tell you how you're doing for the next five years or so um in september i got the all clear for this year which is great but I didn't respond particularly well to the chemotherapy. So when I was pregnant, I had hyperemesis. What's that? I, um, it's, uh, well, they class it as extreme morning sickness. When I had it the first time, my, you know, it wasn't really understood by doctors or hospitals. Kate Middleton had it with mm. all three of her children. Mm. And since she got it, there's clinics reaching out and charities being set of up. Of course there is. You know, but in, in, the, in the days when I had it, um, there was like one support group and it was really, it was really tough because um, so many of the women ended up actually aborting because they felt so ill and they couldn't get, you know, they had doctors taking them off their registries, um, blacklisted in different, uh, in different areas because you know something's not right but from their point of view it's morning sickness and you should just you know man up where actually now they realize that it's not morning sickness at all i used to say it was imagine food poisoning after playing a game of rugby <laughs> because it was a whole body experience <laughs> have you got what one or two kids I've got two children and um, two girls, one's 12 and one's um, five. So I left, I left it quite a big gap because of the hyperemesis, because I, I had to wait for my eldest to be old enough to be relatively self-sufficient in case I was ill with the second. I was, but it wasn't nearly as bad. The first one, I was sick for eight months. So I only had one month of pregnancy where I wasn't being sick. Whereas the second one, it was about five, six months. But the second one, it was slightly easier because I knew it was coming. So I knew my coping mechanisms and what I needed to do. And that made it a lot easier. You're incredible. I found you on Twitter. So a little bit of background on me. I am a, um, I'm an in-house recruiter, but my, most of my career has been in um, agency contingency and search recruitment uh, so I'm no stranger to the CV and, and how appalling they can be so I got married quite late enough I think I was 38 by the time I got married I had my son at 39 my daughter at 41 so it ended up that I didn't get back to work until my youngest was in school so I had five or six years out I just lacked a lot of confidence but what I see now is that there are so many women who are just that little bit behind me and I have so many conversations at the at the school gate with, with parents who are, I can hear them saying what I used to say. When I came across what you were saying, I thought this dovetails perfectly into what I believe, which is you are so much more than a piece of paper. 
if the way that we are getting work is because of a few sheets of A4, then the, the system needs rejigging. Increasingly, I see, I look at the way I recruit and I don't use CVs that much. We are relying on recommendations. We're absolutely looking at a LinkedIn profile, but very quickly we are talking to an individual about their body of experience. We're getting them to put together a business plan which talks about their own unique capabilities so the CV never gets looked at again in the process. Yeah. And what I want to say to a group who are coming back to work after a career gap and they've got this big glaring space on their CV. You know, I don't want that to be the thing because yeah. because there's so much more than just this piece of paper and, and what they have done on their career break is generally not accounted for that, that effectively on a CV anyway. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to talk to you because I thought you had such a great message for this group. Yeah, absolutely. And and the reality is, as a recruiter, you you are recognising that actually the CV doesn't add value when you actually come to recruiting. You know, and if you think of the more um, high volume recruiters that are out there, they may use a keyword search to find those initial CVs. But most recruiters that I know, and I know quite a few, have uh, their own little list of people who, first of all, they've met. Secondly, they feel comfortable that in that interview, they're going to portray themselves well. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, because we all like getting paid, <laughs> that that's the person who's going to get them their next commission, right? Mm -hmm. So all of that happens regardless of the CV. We, mm. We've got real perception that the CV adds value when it doesn't. It detracts from the fact that ultimately everybody recruits the person who they feel is a good fit for their company, both in personality, approach, character, experience. Again, it's this weird perception, right? So mm. I always think it's strange how we're told that we need two things. We need a lot of experience, but it needs to be recent, which is pretty much what blocks out most women because mm -hmm. the most recent part kills them off. Mm -hmm. you know, well, I've been out for one year, two years. However, how, why do you need the long experience then? Why do I need to have a 10-year career in something mm. but actually you're only ever counting the last six months? Mm. And it doesn't make sense. And this is what my position is. I'm just trying to challenge these um, recruiting staff, hiring managers to say, it's just smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. Provide these um, CVs because everybody else does. But actually, mm -hmm. if you start questioning why and how you use them, they don't offer any value. And we, we have the problem with returning mums. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. There's a, it's a two-way thing. First, it's very difficult for a, a, a woman who has been out of the work environment or the job market to look at it and feel like they can compete. But equally, we've got companies who just don't seem to know how to deal with them, although they know they need to. Ultimately, companies know we need to get women back in the workforce. 
we need to get young people in the workforce. The, the workforce that is there is stagnant. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that we use CVs, which comes with the assumption that you have to have done the job to do the job again. And with that, you block all of the talent and all of the potential that for me has a really key ingredient. And that's approach, willingness, passion. Mm -hmm. You know, if you believe in me, I will work hard for you. That doesn't necessarily come from someone who's done the same job over and over again, kind mm -hmm. of around, around the industry. It comes from someone who feels like they've been given a chance. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're not talking about the, the entire workforce where we need people who are highly technically skilled they need to have qualifications they must have experience in order to qualify for a role there are many examples where it is it is still very relevant yeah you, you definitely don't want you know a surgeon who's just rocked up to the job first time <laughs> there are certain skills certain qualifications where this will not apply my argument would be find the experts, don't find the experience. We have this fallacy, I think, that says when we read a CV, we, we can't read it as fact, we interpret it. Right? As a hiring manager, you sit there and go, how much of this is embellished in some way? How much can I trust? How can... But even if you, you take most of it at face value, if I see somebody who's worked 12 months to 18 months in one role, now standard interpretation is they have held that role for a long enough time that you feel comfortable that they knew what they were doing. When you start taking the cover off that, it doesn't actually tell you that they're good at the job. It just tells you that they were there and that's yes. compatible by the fact that HR's reference will only ever say that person worked here between these times. We're using things as justification for retaining a pro the process that actually the second you challenge them, they fall down. Mm. And people have to admit that they actually don't, don't use them in the way that they think they do. LinkedIn have just done a, an interesting survey where they talk about a number of organisations in the States who are literally ditching the CV in their graduate programs. For example, City now have, I don't think they use Pymetrics, but they use, a, they, I think they have a bespoke package that they use to measure the competencies of graduates. So they're no longer just saying, you're Ivy League, you're suitable for us. They are actually measuring the, the innate capabilities and strengths of, of the individuals rather than going off the CV. And it's, it's so interesting and it does really challenge me because, I, I, you know, I've definitely seen more CVs than I've seen hot dinners. And some of them are brilliant and I can still see a place for them. But I completely agree with you that once somebody is in, in the door, we're, we're not using them at all in our organisation. We start to look at the individual. What we're saying is it's about a personal brand. And I think, would you agree that a LinkedIn profile is going to be really important for, for that group? LinkedIn has, has a number of different qualities about it that make it really good for people returning to work. The first, it, it, it kind of feels like just your normal social media. So it's a little bit easier for people to come across with. You know, mm -hmm. if you ask somebody, 
write a LinkedIn profile or write your CV, they'll absolutely go with the profile because it, it feels like it's explaining them yes. rather than what they've done. Also, LinkedIn's whole assumption is on your network. You know, who do you know in your network? And when you're returning from a, a gap, LinkedIn provides you a way of reconnecting with the people from old jobs. So straight away, you don't feel out of the workplace anymore because your guys are still there, you know, and, and even if they've moved on to different roles and different companies, they remember you. And, oh, yeah, I remember you. And when I returned after having my second child, I was actually with a company at the time and um, I was made redundant as I was due to kind of come back in, which is fairly standard, unfortunately. I went on LinkedIn and actually did what a lot of people do, searched the agents. And I reached out to a couple who worked in my area. And I said, oh, have you got anything at the moment? Because agents will always connect with everyone because they understand that LinkedIn is just another CV database for them with a lot more valuable information. But I got a call back. 10 minutes after and it was interesting because he'd had this role open for about six months and hadn't been able to fill it because it was a really weird combination of different skills and, and experience and, and industry knowledge but he went through my profile and it was like bam 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 because my, my career before children I'd moved around industries, I'd moved around roles. And he saw it, he was like, you're, you're a perfect fit. And I had the job within about two days, you know. So LinkedIn works because it shows all of you and all of your capabilities, not just a CV that just feels as two dimensional as it looks. Yep. yep. And that, um, you know, your personal statement. Yeah. I think you're allowed 2,000 words for that now. And what I would say is use every millimetre of that real estate to talk about you, the person, and not the, the cliches that this is what I have delivered and this is the benefit that it had to my organisation. And who you are as, as a person, because that's who somebody is going to be rubbing alongside every day. And that's what makes you unique and memorable. I love what you say about the networking potential of LinkedIn. Because it's, you know, when you are lacking confidence and you think everybody's forgotten you, it's quite the contrary, isn't it? The minute you reach out to somebody, they remember who you were before you had this break. They probably never saw you on your break. They remember you as the person who made a difference. Oh, definitely. Re reconnect, meet for coffee, you know, have, have time with them where you catch them up with where you are. Um, I think we also kind of dismiss the experience that we do get while we're out being mums you know I think there's a fantastic book actually called The Mummy Brain mm -hmm. and it was written by a New York Times reporter who when she was pregnant had been told oh once you've got mummy brain that's it and she got really fed up of being told that she was going to be like less than so she went out and looked at all the scientific studies and they actually found that the hormonal changes of becoming a mother it actually rewires our brain. Now, companies need to become aware of that. Stop thinking of this as downtime. You know, you're, you're out of the workplace. You're learning new skills. And, you know, if you want to talk about working in pressure environments, 
you look at any mum the day before World Book Day <laughs> and you will see. Way two weeks ago. Exactly. You know, All of us two weeks ago. We'll have that moment of, you need, what, by when? Yeah. You know, but we do it. As, as parents, we pull it out of the bag all the time and we learn how to prioritise and, and all of those skills. But because it's wrapped up as parenting, somehow it doesn't apply and that's just wrong. Yeah. We need to bring those more maternal and paternal skills back into the workplace because we're not dealing with resources or headcount. We're dealing with people so true or you're volunteering when you're on a break and you could be doing an enormous project far bigger than anything that you're going to face in your first year back at work what we can't really do on a cv or the perceived the perceived wisdom is that you don't want to make too much of that because it's not your uh you know your commercial experience yeah and and it's always difficult because you get a lot of advice saying hey you've got all these skills from being a parent you should talk about them mm. we, you have to, to because that's part of who you are now but putting it on a cv it just lacks any impact when compared to more commercial style relevance and experience and if you start seeing that then again your confidence gets hit because you go well how how can i compete Big companies now have return approach yes. trying to in, encourage women back into the work. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, and their problem was that no one was applying, mm -hmm. and this is why it's a dual problem. Companies have to be open to it, but we have to get women energized and confident about going forward. You know, and these are programs that are completely designed to work around your family life, to work around the gap in your CV. All of that, but if they if they won't even apply, they can't see the opportunities that are becoming available. So why do you think it is that we don't apply for these roles? Is it a lack of understanding of what a returner program is? Possibly, I think, as with most of social media these days, everybody lives in their own little echo chamber. <laughs> so if you go on LinkedIn all I see is return a program, return a program, return a program, and I see all loads of them. But then if I look at one of the, the clients that I work with who's struggling to feel able to apply for a role, and you look at theirs, there's nothing. They're not advertising them, they're just expecting social media to do the work for them. So they're not going to the right places. One of the challenges I put forward with Ditch the CV, obviously people ask for, well, what's the alternatives? And one of the things I say is, what about a day? Hire out a hall somewhere, bring every manager who's got a job going in their area, bring them in, advertise like mad in the local area and get people to turn up and talk and, and pick your candidates right there on the day. Because actually collecting CVs doing multiple rounds of interviews, doing selection meetings, all of that is just smoke and mirrors for the fact that we, we hire the people who when we look in their eyes, we know we can trust. And that comes from that interaction. And I think women want that interaction as well. I think women are, are more comfortable being given time to show who they are 
you know, I go to a lot of networking meetings, you know, men will stride into the room, hold out, hi, I'm so-and-so, what's your name? And they're very, very comfortable with being quite, you know, approaching other people. Women tend to, you know, not hover necessarily, but they're not as forthcoming. But in mm. an environment where there's, there's a lot of women who they feel have the same challenges as them, that, that are like them, and you're all there together, I think women are much better at supporting each other there. And will, because they feel comfortable, they'll present themselves better. And women who, who support each other are formidable. I mean, this, this is part of our nature, really, that we are, we are such a force to be reckoned with when we, we are collaborating. And it's just in our nature to do that, to be spurring each other on. Women tend to think more holistically. They're not very linear. You know, they will think of a situation and think of various contexts around it. And that's really difficult to place on an application form or a CV. It's easier on LinkedIn. It's ideal face-to-face. -face. So then let's talk a little bit about online job boards. Because uh, they, uh, I mean, I just say to returners, don't, don't bother with them. Would you agree with that? Or is this just... Yeah, 100%. I can't, I can't bear them. They don't work. They, they just simply don't work. When they post a job, there is absolutely nothing stopping another recruiter copying the information, pasting it into a job, a job spec on an online job board and posting it up. Now, that doesn't sound very fair. It's not. The reason they do it is because if they find a good candidate, they can then go to the organisation and say, well, you have to come through us to get this person. It happens all the time. Most of the stuff on job boards aren't even valid jobs. I know I'm probably going to be hated by a lot of, a lot of people like that, but that's the truth. Well, where I, where I see it being a, a big problem is when it comes down to somebody will get one of those jobs. They'll start in an organisation, but their experience once they are 100 days, six months into their role is completely different to what they thought it would be based on the job they applied for. It is completely setting people up to feel like failures because they think they're applying for a valid role and it's either not a real role not able to be offered by that agent or let's say it is a valid role and they are allowed to mm -hmm. the, the process for an online job board standardizes everything you know it, in most cases even if you reformat your cv it strips out the data because they want to be able to mine the data rather than whether it looks good or not. So they bring it down to its bare, bit, bare minimum. So you lose any kind of character that was in your CV anyway. Mm. And online applications now are one or two clicks in some cases. I think mm -hmm. you can apply via LinkedIn itself, via your profile, you just yeah. press the button. Mm -hmm. So if it's that easy, how many people are going to click the button? You're going to have thousands because we're, we're dealing with people who, in some cases, are quite desperate for a role. So they go on, they type in their keyword searches and apply for everything. So we've got the same problem as every recruiter has. I've just got thousands of application forms or CVs. How am I going to whittle them down? Now, 
the reality is they'll top, take the top 20 and they'll look at them. They'll bother with the rest. So if you happen to be number 21, even if you are the best candidate, you don't even get looked at. You can start in the lottery. Yeah. And you can tell which companies do this because when you apply, you get the email that comes back saying, if you don't hear from us, you haven't been unsuccessful. I mean, oh my goodness, how can that possibly be a way to treat people? Mm. And more importantly, if we're talking about commercial aspect, how do you expect your reputation as an employer of choice to be improved by treating people like it? Okay. We forget that even if they're not right for that role, they might be perfect for another one, but because of the way they've been treated, they won't come near you. Yeah. Yeah. What other creative ways could somebody apply to a business and hope to stand out and get a little bit of themselves, you know, the essence of themselves across rather than have to apply through an applicant tracking system? Yeah, so LinkedIn is... is by far the simplest and most effective way, um, the, free, the free version, right? So yeah. you have a profile that is regularly updated. You can apply and ask your previous colleagues to write you recommendations because a lot of people don't realize yes. that your place in the search criteria goes up the more recommendations you have. So get some recommendations, find, the recruiters of companies that you're interested in and link with them say look I'm looking for a role in your organization I'd really appreciate it if you could talk to me and, and ask me most major organizations now do have some form of returner program mm -hmm. and so if you type in the name of the company and returner you'll find groups you'll find pages and you'll find people that you can reach out to so you can do all of that within LinkedIn and, and be quite effective in finding the roles. Other ways of doing it, that, so you mentioned before about psychometric tests. I use a particular product that's um, classed as an organometric product. So this looks at your contribution and approach to work rather than skills and experience. We need to think about our contributions. What can we offer? What can we offer in the first three to six months to an organization. So the questions you'd ask of any organization in those scenarios would be different than if you're asking for skills, experience, number of years, so on. What kind of objectives would you have? What kind of deliverables would you have? What we now understand, and, and this product definitely helps, is that there are kind of five ways that we all contribute what we also know is that there is no gender or race specificity. For example, my profile in this tool tells me that I should be taking on strategic roles. The problem is that unconscious bias, unfortunately, comes in here. We tend to think of women being implementers. They're doers. They're the multitaskers. So... Actually, there's a really big difference between the type of job that other people think I could do and the one that I know that I could do. Yeah. And if I get people closer to what they naturally do, it makes them more aware of the value that they can add to an organisation. So doing something like that, having a personal profile that incorporates, I know that this is the way I would approach the work, changes the conversation from 
what's that gap to that's your approach I like it tell me more rather than here's my role let's do a quick reconciliation and see if you meet my expectations it's that whole idea of asking a different question it's changing the focus from have you done the job before to how would you do this job and going back to your point earlier about employee engagement one of the things that we have the problem with is expectations right the job spec says one thing first day in the in the door you're told something completely different that's usually because the job spec is a template because nobody likes writing them either <laughs> so we, so we reuse the old ones and we assume that somewhere in the process we will be able to explain the differences but it, we can't because we're making the selection based on uh, the CVs that match the job spec then the interviews are in a lot of cases like competency based for example because HR want to prove that you are going through a fair process which means that you can't say to them what we really need you to do is this so straight away you've gone through the entire process without actually being able to tell them what the job is you know if you've got 10 years experience of something and that job spec has said you needed 10 years of experience you're walking in that the first day thinking I need to remember everything that I've done the broad breadth of my knowledge is going to come and happen and in so many cases they go oh that bit's being automated that bit's dealt with some bit by somebody else that bit well nobody does that that's outsourced and and you're left doing a third of what you're capable of doing and yet you've been set up through the process um, we see it with graduate programs. My first job was through a graduate program and the entire process was telling me how special I was, how I was, they needed these very unique qualities. And my first day on the job was a real shock because I was told you're at the bottom of the ladder, you don't know anything, so you can't be this amazing future leader that they've primed you for. And a lot of the people who joined at the same time, that was what they struggled with. They struggled with that expectation being built up and then not being able to, to work on, on the same level. And we see that all the time. So it's important to be saying, this is who I am. This is how I go about delivering. These are the benefits that I as an individual bring so that you have this consistent message that no one can argue with really and there's no misunderstanding further down the track. Yeah, absolutely. If you can have the conversation that says, what's the gap in that team? What, mm. What's missing from that team being amazing? And then I'll tell you how I would bridge that gap. The hiring manager gets a sense of what that person's capable of. They also get someone who from day one knows what they are in to deliver. From the hiring manager's point of view, they can performance manage from day one because it's clear from day one what's supposed to be delivered. When you go as the hiring manager and say, oh, you know, this person's not working out, for example, HR will say to you, well, were you clear in explaining what they had to do? And nine times out of ten, they weren't because the job spec wasn't right. The interviews didn't say anything. And they walked in day one to an almost completely different job. Yeah. So then you have to 
start the process maybe six or nine months down the line, which is incredibly stressful for a person who thought that it was a job that they could do and then actually find out it's one that is challenging them maybe in ways that they weren't expecting. I love that as an interview question to be able to walk in and say, what are the gaps in your team? What are the, the pain points that you need somebody to come in and address? Which yeah. is what any interviewer wants to hear, really, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And it puts you on the right side in the interview. An interview becomes very one-sided. You know, they feel like they've got to have all the answers. And one of those answers is having, you know, that killer question or, or, you know, what questions are you going to ask back? In an interview, what you need to do is sound interested in the role that's being offered. <laughs> I, you know, I, I spend hours interviewing people and you spend 40 minutes trying to break down that polished front because I didn't want to see that. I wanted to see the person behind all of that. It, it just gets in the way. But we also have to factor in that once we're in the room, we all become focused on winging. You know, we want to win the interview. We go into that mentality. So we start asking questions. We start compromising and saying, yeah, sure, I can work 10-hour days. That's not a problem. Rather than staying focused on, is this a company that I'm prepared to offer my services to because they're able to work with me on the kind of life that I want, the kind of work-life balance I want. And, you know, we have to be fulfilled. You know, I'm, I'm very much the same. I love my kids, but I'm a much better mum when I'm doing my own thing as well. Mm. And that company has to be able to support you in that. Not, and, and what a lot of women unfortunately do think, I'm asking for flexi time, therefore... I've just got to pretty much go in there, cap in hand, take what they give me. And we don't need to do that. You know, you've got a set of skills and a set of qualities and an approach to work that they need. They need more than you do. So go into the room with more confidence, but, you know, understand your personal brand and stay focused in the interview to be able to say and assess is this a company that I want to work for? Actually, it's easier for everybody if you are confident and clear rather than tolerant and actually getting a bit passive aggressive because you're thinking, well, I've got an okay deal here and it's not about that. And people are actually, your employer is expecting more of you. They're expecting you to um, perform optimally and, and tell them what you need to get there. And if they can't deliver that, then, then you might have to have a different conversation. But the final question I had for you was, I perceive you very much as a, a disruptor because of the type of work that you do. If you look at the Leelam website, what comes across really clearly is that you are somebody who is just thinking, what does different look like if we turn all of this on its head, whatever situation an HR or wider organisation is, is facing. But how, thinking again about my audience, asking a different question and and reframing the challenges that they are facing what advice could you give given that that's really your mindset anyway in the work you do i don't consider myself disruptive in that i'm not going out of my way to deliberately you know agitate or just saying you know black is white 
the concept for Ditch the CV started by asking the question, what if we didn't use anything? So to start with a blank page or to start with a critique of what's happening and, and how would you want to be treated? How would you want to do it? So to think disruptively, it's just about thinking what a lot of people have stopped thinking about. You know, there's one of the, the real benefits of bringing somebody into an organization who has zero experience is they'll ask all of the stupid questions that everybody else has stopped asking because, well, that's just not the way it's done. But actually having someone go, but why do you do it that way? Can be the sticking point for a lot of companies and go, oh, actually, I, I don't know why we do it that way. But that's the mentality. Just keep being curious. And just asking yourself the question the whole way through, is this where I want to be heading? Exactly. Instead of selling out and, say, and, and as you say, trying to game an interview, I've done it, I've got a really competitive spirit. So there's part of me that will want to go into a meeting and just win people over for the sake of doing it. But of course, that is absolutely nonsensical when it comes to securing a job. You've had a break. You know what else is out there in the world. Why not? apply what you've taken you know to your to your work environment and just be you know try and be as authentic with yourself as, as other people I, I just love your message lots of it's really challenging for me as a recruiter I will go back to 50 CVs and and you know there, there will be instances of course as you will conceive where it's really important but it is so beneficial to have people like you who are challenging what we do and making sure that candidates have a great experience as they go through and that they're being treated like humans and individuals rather than numbers because that's not going to work for anybody. No, and, and I think um, if you look at what we're seeing around the conversations of AI and a lot of the automation, a lot of people are getting nervous that you know, roles are being lost to machines. To my mind, that makes the people in your organization more valuable because they're doing something that the machines can't do. And they're adding that human layer of intuition, of gut feeling, of those years of experience and making them really count. And each voice has value. And we've got to step away. I'm passionate about the idea of just stepping away from this idea that a company works in one way and when there's a gap or, you know, somebody leaves, we just find a clone of that person and slot them back in because the machine might continue to work, but it won't update, it won't grow. And the people inside won't grow either. And that's where you can have a perfectly functioning machine with really low engagement, high attrition. And, you know, the exit interviews all saying the same thing. Well, I, I didn't feel like I was valued. So we have to start having companies understanding that their people are their most important resource that they have in, their, in the organisation and that their success is built on those people. So invest in the people and that makes it better for the individuals but also for the, the company as a whole. It's a no-brainer, or it should be anyway. <laughs> yeah. Leelam, thank you. I think you're great. Thank you very much.